please open to Paul's second letter to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Last week, I only made it to the first point of my sermon, so hopefully we'll get to at least the second one this week. Um, that was a joke. <laughs> or was it? No. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3. Part 2, verses 10 through 17. God willing, we will finish the chapter. Our text this morning is a very, very magnificent and familiar passage. I know of no other single passage that speaks so strongly of the divine origin of God's word, the importance, persevering, giving us confidence in God's word. So let's read the entire passage, 2 Timothy 3, 10 to 17, as we prepare to study it. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus." All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Lord God, we pray that you would use your spirit and your word to equip us for every good work that through your word you would make us wise unto salvation, that through the example of others and our leaders and each other, that we would ground and establish and convince each other of the truth. Guard us, Lord God, from being those evil and imposters who, who progress to the worse and help us to willingly suffer for your sake. Lord God, mold us, shape us, fashion us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now in this passage, the Apostle Paul lays three foundation stones, if you will, three supports for Timothy. The two big themes in this book sort of converge here, and this section itself sets up what really, in my mind, has to be one of the most strong, high, and mighty charges I've ever seen in the Bible. Just take a look at chapter 4, how it begins. And I want you to imagine, what else could the Apostle Paul stack up on top of this? You know, as kids, when you used to sort of make pinky promises, you like double, triple, dog, you know, whatever the things you... And you'd always try to like build it higher, right? You'd always try to make your, your promise, your oath stronger... I can't imagine what the Apostle Paul could do in chapter 4 to make this a stronger exhortation. Look at what he stacks up here. I charge you, he says in chapter 4, verse 1, in the presence of God 
and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So this week's passage sets up this charge. The, the, the threads of faithfulness and perseverance and being willing to suffer and confidence in God's word and, and being aware and exposing and correcting false teaching are coming together as the book draws to a close. And so in our passage today, verses 12 through 17, we will see three foundation stones, three supports to hold up Timothy to fulfill this monumental charge in chapter four, to guard him from faithlessness, or as I've titled this morning's message, how to persevere and remain faithful in a fallen world. And there's three things we need to see, three things Timothy needs to believe and receive and to use to support him. And so let's dive in. The first in verses 12 to 13 is Timothy, and therefore we need to learn from two contrasting outcomes. Learn from two contrasting outcomes. Paul has started this passage reminding Timothy of his own firsthand knowledge of the Apostle Paul's life. And he recounts specifically the persecutions he encountered in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra. That is, of course, where Paul was stoned and left for dead. That's the town where he met Timothy in Acts 16. And we had to stop there last week and just marvel at the tenacity and the perseverance of the Apostle Paul who got back up, either resurrected or they hadn't quite killed them, and he went right back into the town and began teaching again. But what is separated for a week for us is the very next sentence in the epistle. As he gets this contrast, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. There's one half of the contrast while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This is a truth that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, that is repeatedly told throughout the scripture, and yet it's a truth that in our evangelism, in our outreach, and in our churches, we like to downplay. We like to sort of just keep it quiet. But no one was more forthright about this than Jesus Listen to this in Luke 6. You can turn with me if you want. I just want you to see how repeatedly this is taught by our Lord. That the call to come to Christ is a free invitation, but it's free in the same way that joining the Marines is free. Joining the military is free. It's free. It's going to cost you a lot. But it's free. They'll provide everything you need. Look at Luke chapter 6, verse 20 through 29. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who weep, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That's pretty clear. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. 
For so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who persecute you, who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes your cheek, offer the other also. And from whom takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Jesus is clear. For his sake, sufferings, exclusions, mockings, derisions will happen. Listen to this in John 15. If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I have chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember that the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. Then a chapter later in 1633, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So Jesus, in many other places we could point to, is very clear that coming to him, receiving him by faith, will bring on tribulation and suffering. That's what it will invite. Rather than having your best life now, you will have suffering, you will have tribulation, you will be attacked and derided. And this is why many of the times when Jesus gave a gospel invitation, he would warn people to count the cost. Think of Luke 9, 23. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. See, Jesus is saying, look, if you're not, if you're not prepared for self-denial, if you're not prepared for suffering, if when the going gets tough, you're going to run and try to protect your life, Jesus says, go home. Go home. Save yourself some bother. Anyone would come after me. Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and daily follow me. And this just isn't a popular message. It's a lot easier to present Jesus as the one who will give you peace and happiness and comfort and give you meaning in your life. That's all true as far as it goes. But with, we've seen the emphasis in, in 2 Timothy, and I, I could show you more and more in places where Jesus, to people who have not yet decided to follow him, is telling them, look, don't build a tower if you can't finish it. Don't go to war against somebody you, can't, you don't have the forces to meet. Don't sign up for something you're not prepared to follow through with. And, and I, I fear in, in the West, where we are prosperous and where the types of persecutions that were occurring in the first century are rare, that it's really easy in the name of making the gospel look more appealing to just sort of, you know, not mention that stuff. And, and I hope we will learn from this, because the danger, of course, is if, if we don't 
teach this and believe it, when suffering comes, we're going to split. And as we learned a few weeks ago, if we are enduring, chapter 2, verse 12, we will also reign with him, but if we deny him, he will deny us. We learn that the faith that saves will persevere to the end. So Paul is reminding Timothy of something that isn't a pleasant reality. I don't, I don't get excited when I think of suffering. I, I, don't, I don't get invigorated by it. But I know that my Lord, and I know that his apostles promised it, predicted it, assured me that if I'm being faithful, it will come. That if I desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, you will suffer. You will. And anyone who thinks they've worked out some Christian form of life that avoids this is not desiring to live godly in Christ Jesus. It's as simple as that. If, you, if you've figured it out, um, you are mistaken. We will be persecuted. It'll come from within the church. It'll come from without the church. Paul's dealing here with those in the church. And we read in Acts last week with the persecution from without the church. It'll come. Give it time. It will come. And that leads me to the, to the second point here under A, which is therefore expect it. Don't seek to avoid it. Expect it. Don't seek to avoid it. You remember the parable of the, the seed, the parable of the sower who sowed seed, and some of it fell among rocky soil, and it sprouts up, but it has no root. When the sun comes out, it dies, and Jesus says, this is that seed which initially receives the word with joy, but when trials and difficulty and persecutions come, it dies, and it produces no fruit. And so as, as much as it might be nice to stick our head in the sand, pretend this isn't true, just think about the happy parts of Christianity, if you're not in persecution right now, the Lord wants you to prepare for it. He wants you to steel yourself for it. He wants you to be preparing your mind so that when the trials come, you don't split, you don't fold, you don't deny him, but you walk in. Expect it, don't seek to avoid it. Now, I don't mean we should be sadists or masochists who are looking for suffering, and the Apostle Paul at times avoids trouble. He sneaks out of a town silently. But what I mean here is the whole picture. If, you, if the point of your life is to avoid suffering at all costs, you're going to find being a follower of Christ impossible. Impossible. Listen to, to turn with me. Turn with me to 1 Peter 4. The early church was wrestling with this. The Messiah came. He was supposed to bring in the kingdom. And you can read in the Old Testament that the messianic age and the peace and the joy that would happen and the Messiah comes and they're scattered and they're, and they're persecuted and they're outlaws and it's not the way they thought it was going to be. And so in 1 Peter 4, Peter writing to a suffering church says this in verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, or as an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet, if someone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, 
but let him glorify God in that name. And I just look at that paragraph. Beloved, he says, don't be surprised. Don't be vexed. Don't think, why did you let this happen, Lord? The New Testament repeatedly, repeatedly warns us it's coming. God disciplines those sons who he receives. He scourges every son whom he receives. And we live in a fallen world, and our enemy, like a roaring lion, lion roams about seeking whom he will devour. So we've got a father who wants to mature us and sanctify us in a forge of trials. We've got an enemy who wants to devour us. And we are sinful people living among sinful people. And if, if you add all that up, it spells trouble with a capital T. And yet, in a prosperous country like America and the West, we can delude ourselves into thinking that, you know, we can have our cake and eat it too. We can follow Jesus and we can have a nice, happy life now. And, and this, this one verse in this passage destroys that. If, if you think you've found the way to follow Jesus and have a nice, happy, comfortable life, you know something the Apostle Paul didn't. Actually, you disagree with the Apostle Paul, who says all, indeed all, who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said it, Paul said it, I believe it. It's not... It's not a happy teaching, but it's a repeated biblical teaching. And, and we need to hear it so that we can be ready when trials come, so that we don't fold. And I think this also removes the anguish. I mean, it's one thing to be in a trial. Trials are tough. I think it was Oscar Wilde who said he could resist everything except temptation. Um, and trials in and of themselves are tough. But you can sometimes have the added trial of this trial, whatever it is, and Father, why are you letting this happen? And, and this sort of anguish between you and God, and I didn't, I, I've been good. Why is this happening? And at the very least, wrapping our heads around this can remove that second agony. And so you can believe my Father doesn't give stones when we ask for bread. He doesn't give vipers when I ask for fish. I swear my teeth are going to break when I take a bite into this, but Lord, help me. I'm going to bite down. I'm going to trust you that you know what you're doing. I'm going to trust you that this trial is intended for my good and that you're sovereign in and over it. That's, that's the one side of the, of the contrast. That's what, what those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus should expect. On the other side, there's wicked men and imposters. The word translated imposters is, comes from the uh, Hebrew word for the professional mourner. In a... In Israel, if someone died, you would likely hire professional mourners. Um, it, sort of the bigger the person, the more you'd hire them. And you'd have 10, 20 people pulling you know, their hair out, renting their clothes. They're all hired. And that's the term here for imposters. comes from that word. And it's a vivid picture. Those who would pretend to be something. Wicked men and imposters. He's speaking of those in the church. He's been speaking of them. We took a brief aside. Chapter 3, 1 to 9 deals with them. And what's going to happen with them is they're going to make progress, but for the worse. They're going to make progress for the worse. They're going to go on from bad to worse, which is another thing that should not surprise us. We look around at the false teaching in the church. We look around at some of the more notable false teachers, and you can be dismayed. But again, this isn't anything that the New Testament didn't predict. 
There, there are two trajectories you can get on. You can, you can be in Christ, you can desire to live godly, and there will be some suffering, or you can get on this false teaching track and make progress from bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. You'll pick this up again in a few verses later in chapter 4. Look at verse 3. This is the reason why Timothy needs to teach and preach, reprove and exhort in season and out of season. Verse 3, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths, deceiving and being deceived. You know, there's a principle at work that sin makes you stupid. I don't know if you know that. Sin makes you stupid. I mean, just think about this. Think about, think about the probably most inherently brilliant person who ever existed, Adam. He's in the garden. The Lord says, don't eat that fruit. The day you eat that fruit, you will die. He eats the fruit. Adam has a big problem. He has just rebelled against the God of the universe. He has incurred the death penalty. What does Adam think his problem is? I don't have clothes. And what does he need? If he can just get clothes, he'll be okay. That's stupid. It's stupid. He's going to hide his nakedness from God with some clothes. And you go, what are you thinking? Sin makes you stupid. Romans 1. If you read Romans 1, starting in verses 18 and following, because of man's sinfulness, because man suppresses the truth, because man doesn't want to honor and worship God, three times God gives man over to a depraved mind, to depraved passions, and an unapproved mind. And oftentimes God's judgment on our sinfulness is we get stupid. And I'm sure you know people caught up in sin who say stupid things. Crazy justifications and excuses for what they do. Deceiving and being deceived. That's, that's the first thing we've got to learn. We've got to learn that these are the two trajectories. These are the two paths. There is no middle carpool lane where you get to avoid suffering and keep Jesus no, there's, there's, there's two paths, there's two roads. This is classic wisdom concept. We've got to learn and prepare ourselves and, and, and ready ourselves from two contrasting outcomes. Second, remain in what you have learned. Remain in what you have learned. Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And this sort of picks up what we talked about last week. The shift here from wicked men and imposters is emphatic. Um, the ESV says, but as for you, but really it's you. And you can sort of underline that you. It's emphatic. In contrast to that, here's what Timothy needs to do. And what he needs to do is continue, persevere, abide, remain in what he has learned. And, and Paul stresses two things. There's the what and the who. First is the what. This is the content of what Timothy has been taught. He says what you have learned and what you have firmly believed. And this is all that content of Christian truth. Go back to 2 Timothy 1. Let's track some of this. Verse 5, chapter 1. 
For I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. So, so Timothy learned from his mother and from his grandmother by clear implication. Go down to verse 13, chapter 1. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit and trusted you. So we've got a pattern of sound or healthy words that Paul has taught Timothy. Chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me now we bring the community in. In the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And that's just a smattering of, of what this book has to say about Timothy's instruction. So Timothy was taught by his mother, by his grandmother, by Paul, in the presence of the church. And, and Paul's calling on this, this body of truth and conduct that you've learned. You need to remain in it. You need to persevere in it. You need to continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. It matters. And, and who, knowing, he says, from whom you have learned it. Which is, again, the point I was making last week. Truth cannot be abstracted from the people who communicate it. I, I love books. You go to my office, I got a lot of books. I like books. I like listening to sermons on my podcast when I'm, when I'm in the gym. But it can never substitute for living and breathing teachers. Because what books can't do is show me the life of the person who lived, who wrote the book. What the podcast can't do is show me the life of the person who's teaching. And Paul again and again emphasizes not just the content of what is taught, but the lives of those who teach it. Have you, have you never been surprised that the qualifications for an elder, four-fifths of the list have to do with their family, their marriage, their kids. In, in 1 Timothy, there's just able to teach. The rest of it's his life. Titus develops the teaching a little bit, but even in Titus, again, the overwhelming majority of the emphasis is on the conduct of their lives. Because you've, you've got to be able to model what you're living. The, the biblical picture of discipleship, the biblical picture of apprenticeship is more than just content transfer. That's not... That's not discipleship. That's not teaching. It's, it's got to be life on life. And so Paul points Timothy to what he learned, the content, and remember who you learned it from. The implication being, it gives you greater certainty. You know, sometimes you can be tempted to think, you know, some of these things you've taught, you've learned. Uh, I'll be honest, I have days where I wonder, I have doubts about some of the things I believe. But when I start to think of the godly men and women who I know and I've learned from and the conduct of their lives and the faithfulness with which they've lived and how genuine and how self-evidently right it was, it brings great confidence into me. See, sometimes if I just think of the Christian truths abstracted as just like a structure of thought, in weaker moments, I can have moments of doubt, but when I think of the godly men, the professors I had, the the people who discipled me when I was a younger Christian, the, the people who are having impact in my life now, people who are suffering well, doubts get thrown out as I consider that. 
We need to remain in what we've learned, but who we learned it from matters. And I said this last week, you need people speaking truth into your life. You need to be discipled. You need leaders. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. We looked at this last week. We will look at it again. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember, or be remembering, your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It doesn't say your pastors, your, your elders. It just says your leaders. And then it, by opposition, describes who those leaders are. It's anyone who's spoken the word of truth to you, the word of God to you. Children, that means your parents, your teachers, the Bible study leaders. Sure, it means your pastors and elders as well, but this is a broad, a broad topic. Anyone. That, that'll be tempting. It'll be tempting to guard because if, if you spend too much time with me, you'll see my weak spots. If you spend too much time with me, you'll see my sin. But I can keep up a, a good front for two hours on a Sunday morning, maybe one other thing. This is why we need to be in each other's lives. Because clearly, Paul is implying that the knowledge that Timothy has about those who taught him will help him persevere. As he can think of what he's been taught, but having seen it fleshed out and lived out in the lives of godly men and women, in his mother and his grandmother, that is part of what is helping him persevere and drive on. So we've got to learn, we've got to remain, and thirdly, we've got to rely on the scriptures. And now we get to verses 15 through 17, which are so familiar. So, so familiar. And I want you to notice just two things here. Um, as Dave Stringer pointed out this morning, we have, I have, um, six years ago to the day, Six years ago to this day, did a sermon on this very text, just this last part. And you could do an eight-part series on this. I would suggest you, you can go look it up online, our sermon series last spring on, this, on the Scripture. One of them on sufficiency really unpacked this text. And so knowing that, I'm mainly trying to fit this into the argument try to fit this in as it fits into the text, knowing that I could spend hours here and not plumb the depths of this. So we will only spend the next 15, 20 minutes here, and then we will move on. And if you want to go deeper, there are, there are places you can go to go deeper with that. But I just want to point out two things. That the scriptures, according to Paul, have two primary functions. The first is that the scriptures are powerful to save. Powerful to save. He says in verse 15, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Literally, the word translated there from childhood could mean infancy. It's one of the reasons why it's so great that we teach our children God's word. The scriptures are able to reveal Christ. The scriptures can reveal the gospel. 
and it's good to know it from a young age. You don't need to turn there, but just listen to these familiar words from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Just five chapters later, Deuteronomy 11, 18. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Do you get the idea that God wants us talking about him and his word to our kids pretty much all the time? Do you get that, that repetition? That's the point. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house. You shall talk of them when you are sitting in your house to your children, when you are walking in the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. That's pretty comprehensive. It's like, good night, and then you start speaking about God's word. Or, good morning, and then, you know, just there it is. Or we're sitting down for a meal. It's time to talk about God and his word. Or we're going on a walk or a journey. Time to talk about God and his word. And it appears as though Timothy's mother and grandmother did that because Paul's able to say that from his childhood, from his infancy, he has been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to reveal Christ in the gospel. Then he goes on, through faith in Christ Jesus. And, And I just want to pause here for a moment because sometimes you can assume that. But, but that is, if you're here today and you're not sure what's the Bible about or, or what's all this talking about, the point of the Bible, and, and Timothy's Bible would have been what we call the Old Testament. And Paul says the Old Testament is able to make one wise for salvation. Jesus, on the road to Emmaus in Luke, showed the disciples all the things that spoke about concerning him. And, and the, the central story of the Bible is about Jesus Christ, about how he came to this fallen world. And even though we were rebels, we were his enemies, we at every turn went our own way like sheep going astray. Even though we'd earned the cosmic death penalty, he died for us, the just for the unjust. He took our penalty upon himself. He was bruised for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And even though he was killed, on the third day he he rose again, and through faith in his name. You know, I I said earlier about how the gospel call, it calls us freely, but much like joining the military, it can cost a lot. Coming to Christ is as simple as turning to him in faith, turning from whatever you've been trusting in, whatever you've been building your life on, turning to him in faith, receiving him. But everything changes then. All things become new. He is the treasure of great prize for which we gladly sell everything to receive. And 
That is what the scripture announces, and that is what Paul is calling Timothy to hold fast to. That's what Timothy has known from infancy. That the scriptures are powerful to save through faith in Christ Jesus. Just turn back to chapter 1 of, of, first, of 2 Timothy, and look at how Paul summarizes the gospel there. 2 Timothy chapter 1, 8 through 10. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in sufferings for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works. Salvation is not about doing things, earning things. There's nothing you must do to be saved other than look to the Son of God in faith. Not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And the scriptures are powerful to again and again and again reveal and explain and unpack and magnify and exalt the Christ of the gospel and the gospel of Christ. So they're powerful to save. Secondly, the scripture is also powerful to equip. Scripture is powerful to equip. And we can forget about that sometimes. We can think of the gospel and God's word as sort of, for beginners, the entry gate. And there, there is some truth in the sense of there, there are foundational gospel truths that we all must learn first, and then we grow on, and we grow on, and we move on from milk to solid food. But it's always the scripture that is being used to shape and equip us. The scripture applied by the Holy Spirit is powerful to equip us. So notice that after first saying you've known from childhood the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So the two things Paul focuses on is scripture's power to save and scripture's power to equip. But first, let's not skip over that God-breathed bit. This is where um, some of your translations will say inspired. Theonustes, theos, God, pneuma, pneumatic drill, air, spirit, breath. God breathed. Scripture is God breathed. It is breathed out by God. That is an incredibly high statement. Scripture isn't just something some committees put together. This is the very word of God breathed out by God and is powerful. So God breathed, you can put the equals mark there, equals inspiration. Inspiration. Although technically inspiration means to breathe in, just saying that the scriptures are expired doesn't have the same ring to it. You know, what's their expiration date? No, they're breathed out. They are God breathed. The men were inspired. The men received God's spirit to direct them as they wrote. They were inspired. The writings are God-breathed. And just listen to some of the other statements about Scripture and how it was written. 2 Peter 1, 20 to 21. Knowing this, first of all, 
that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Scripture is God-breathed. And as a result, listen to the majestic words of Hebrews 4, 12 to 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. You know, so many people want to sit in judgment of the Bible. They don't realize the Bible's looking back judging them. So many people want to critically come and figure out Q and the Johain community, and they want to preside over it and divide it up, and they don't realize that it's cutting them and dividing them up. And the scripture is a light, a spotlight, and a scalpel cutting us to the core, revealing who we are, unmasking our excuses, unmasking our escape attempts, and we are seen for who and what we are in the sight of God. Because the word of God is living and active. It is God-breathed. It is inspired. Next, notice the, the, the order here. He lists four things that Scripture is useful for. To teach, to rebuke, to correct, and to train in righteousness. And I think the order there is very significant. I think, I think the order is very intentional. I want you to think about it. You don't rebuke people for what they don't know. At least you shouldn't. <laughs> I hope not, right? So if somebody tells you a lie or if somebody steals something from you, you're pretty certain they know that's wrong. You can just move to, hey, you shouldn't have done that. But when, when I had friends who were violating copyright laws by burning CDs, I didn't assume they knew that was illegal. So like, we probably need to talk about that. You, you instruct before you rebuke. People need to know true things before they can be convicted in light of true things. So God's word is first and foremost useful to teach, to show us what is true, to show us what God would have us do, to show us his commands, his promises, his instruction, his character. And in light of that teaching, we are convicted because now here's what God wants me to do. Here's what I did. Here's who God says he is. Here's who I've been thinking he is. Here's what God says of me. Here's what I say of me. And so scripture now, its second function is to convict and rebuke and call to repentance. So firstly, it shows us who God is and what he calls of us and, and who he says we are. And then in light of that, there's conviction. You know, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. They might wash her by the pure water of the word. And you hear somebody explain that. And then someone says to you, or the thought comes to you, how am I doing with that? And you get convicted. And I'm, I'm so thankful that he doesn't stop there. Because I think so often that's where we can stop. Here's what God says, and I didn't do it, and I'm a bad person because I didn't do it. But the third part Scripture can correct, can straighten us out. This is, I've talked a lot about this when we've done stuff on biblical counseling, but the Scriptures not only can show us the target on the wall, it, it can show us the bullseye, and it can rebuke us for failing and for missing. But thank God the Scripture can help us improve our aim. 
The scripture can change us. You know, if, if you're convicted by what you're reading, if you realize I am light years away from this, I'm nowhere near this. Let's stick with my example, but a husband. I'm not a very Christ-like husband. Well, my response would be, well, do you want to be? Because scripture is not only able to show you what you should do and make you feel bad and convicted when you don't, but it can correct you, change you. Think of the Apostle Paul, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Transformation's on the table. Death and resurrection is on the table. We're not talking about a remodel, but a total gutting renovation, a change from the inside out. And then finally, training in righteousness. This is just persevering growth. Scripture is useful for every step of the way. This is one of the reasons why I'm committed to biblical counseling. God's word can tell us what he wants us to do. It can convict and rebuke us when we fail to do it, but it can also help us change and grow and maintain that change. Or as Psalm 19 says it, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous all together. We're Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. The last thing I want to look at before our time is done here is that last phrase, for every good work. Every good work. And those of you who are in my Sunday school class know the point I'm going to make here can probably guess the blank. God breathed means inspiration. Every good work means sufficiency. Sufficiency. That phrase, every good work, showed up just a little earlier in the book. Paul, speaking of the uh, false teachers in chapter 2, verse 20 to 21, he says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Now, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he'll be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And we talked about wanting to become those useful vessels, instruments in the Redeemer's hand. Well, the other key piece, the key piece there was distancing yourself from false teaching. And here, it's relying upon the Word of God, which is able to equip us for most good works. No, no, that's not what it says there. A lot of, no, every, does yours say every? Does yours say, just want to check, every good work? Do you believe that, that the Scripture is able to teach, tell us what we need to do, able to convict us when we're not doing it, and able to help us actually do all those things God calls us to do, or every good work, for every single one of them, that it doesn't need a supplement, it doesn't need additional books, it doesn't need anything else, but everything you need for life and godliness, everything you and I need for every good work is right here, because that is a huge claim. It is a huge claim that I believe, but the implications of it are, are huge. In fact, on the back of your bulletin sheet, I, I've listed out, we're not going to have time to go over it now, but on the back of the notes are seven implications of the sufficiency of Scripture. I, I encourage you, when you go in for lunch, 
when you're sitting down, when you're rising, and along the way, to, to think through them, to think about the implications of the sufficiency of Scripture and, and really believe it. God has not given us some of what we need. He has not given us most of what we need. He's given us all that we need for every good work so that we can be competent, fully equipped for the tasks he's called us to do. And it's this confidence, just, just by review, confidence in the word of God, confidence in what Timothy has learned and who he has learned it from, and a mental willingness to not run from the fire, to not run from the trouble, that Paul is laying this groundwork for Timothy to set up this command we'll look at next week for him to preach and teach boldly. And I would suggest to you that we need to do that. We need to wrap our heads around the fact that sometimes the Lord is going to call us into suffering. We need to remember that we need to be involved knowing people so that not just we know the content, but we know their lives. And finally, we need to be relying on this book and not looking to something else. There are so many subtle ways. I wish we had time to go into it. There are so many subtle ways that we put this book down because implicitly we don't believe it as the answers and we go someplace else. In fact, that's exactly what we will, will be covering in my ABF today. There's so many subtle ways in which we close this book and go someplace else for answers because we don't believe that it has everything for life and godliness. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, I just pray that you would help us to believe your word, that you'd help us to rely upon your word. You'd cause us to rely upon each other. We need each other. And you'd cause us to be willing, if, if you deem it necessary, to suffer for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.